Welcome to Between the Lines, a monthly podcast that explores books for a better world, brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. What if we turn politics on its head? If we put people at the centre and recognise the knowledge and creativity of each individual? In this month's episode, academic and activist Hilary Wainwright discusses her book, A New Politics from the Left. She draws on existing models and discusses the potential for a different kind of politics, one which comes from the bottom up and focuses on facilitation and partnership rather than expert domination. Interviewing Hilary is IDS Director of Research, Professor John Gabenta. Today, Hilary is, is joining us to talk about her newest book, A New Politics from the Left. I have to say, I took this away uh, on holiday uh, a couple of a month or so ago and to, to read it, getting ready for this interview, and I, and I couldn't put it down. It discusses some complex political ideas and ideas about participatory democracy and participatory action, but does it in a very, very simple and integrated way. So, Hillary, thank you for being with us. This is an ambitious title, A New Politics from the Left. Can you outline a little bit its core argument and what's new about the argument? I'll try. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here and talking to you, John, because you've been a big influence on me in my thinking. So I suppose it, it's in a way I was always worried it's rather a glib title for what is, as you say, a complex issue. It's really trying to turn existing politics on it upside down, partly in reaction to the deep disillusion there is with existing politics and existing politicians and the way they behave uh, and the institutions that they inhabit and, and reproduce and, and support and, and often deploy for their own interests. And so it's looking at people and in particular the knowledge and capacity of people and exploring in a way the politics of knowledge and saying what if we we thought about and imagined a politics which starts from the idea that people have got real capacity and knowledge, particularly when they share a lot of their hunches, intuitions, what uh, has been called tacit knowledge, which implies knowledge that hasn't been codified, isn't seen as scientific or official, you know, like amongst women, what's often dismissed as gossip, actually is full of insights and ideas, which certainly from my experience in the women's movement became the basis of new institutions around health, around violence, domestic violence, around education, all these different experiences that came out of a recognition of this practical knowledge. So that's its basic foundation to explore the, the knowledge of extraordinary, ordinary people you know, recognising that capacity, which, as Tom Paine once said, lies dormant, normally lies dormant, you know, throughout people's lives, unto the grave, he put it. Mm. But but actually, he was saying, you know, what if we had a form of government that harnessed all that capacity, which sometimes does blossom in moments of struggle and revolution, uh, he, he talked about. I mean, for me, it blossomed, for example, amongst the women in the mining communities in the UK when the miners were being threatened with job loss and, and the closure of the mines. The communities came together and the women took a real lead and women who'd been completely you know, subordinate and 
just living a very private, supportive life for their men, um, became political leaders. You know, they went around the world explaining what was going on and why they needed support. And it was it was just obvious they had this capacity, which had never been the basis of politics or of any public institution. So it was wasted, in a way, for, for, each, for each other, for, the, for society. So it's trying to explore that idea. And then you bring that idea of, of recognition of, of people's knowledge and people's everyday knowledge to the idea of participatory democracy and to the idea of a more participatory economy. What's, what's the link? What, what, how do you bring this knowledge of everyday people into to democratic politics? And, and what's, how is that different from the way we've done politics, at least in the UK, before? Yes, I mean, um, that idea of participatory democracy was influenced less by the UK and more by experiences in Brazil, in, to a degree in South Africa with the civics, in India, in Kerala, in many different experiences. And it spoke to the the inadequacy of representative democracy. I mean, these forms of participation involve representation of a certain kind, but representative democracy has this idea that an MP or a, a member of the Congress is voted for and then they're left to, to act, to govern. Whereas participatory democracy is about a much more continuing relationship between the representative and the people and if we think about it what's the basis of that that's not possible through traditional forms of representative democracy and actually it is that the the in participatory democracy the representative you know on the participatory budget or you know in the running of an institution is regularly informed by and often pressured by a knowledgeable citizenship so participatory democracy assumes not only the capacity of the people and the confidence of the people to participate and to and to influence public decisions, but also assumes that the, the, they can almost improve their capacity through participation. It was actually something that a liberal, John Stuart Mill, emphasised, the educative mm. role of, of democracy. And I think that does apply to participatory democracy, but it doesn't apply to representative democracy, which in a way turns people into passive citizens. It's a kind of, you know, you vote and you delegate your, your mm. responsibilities to, to somebody else. And then you leave decisions to those representatives or to the experts. Yes, and uh, they can often be very really... vulnerable to, to corruption. To You know, they're, they're sort of they're in a little lair of their own. They're not... Often the, it's not accompanied with transparency. There's not a continuing flow and pressure between them and the people. And so that means that vested interests can slip into that the gap between the people and the representatives. And so I think participatory democracy, often it's arisen in response to the, the weakness of representative democracy in controlling the state. I mean, because that's what representative democracy is meant to do. You know, the parliament, the legislature is meant to control the executive. But it, it has never worked like that because representative democracy is too weak a, a means of actually um, making present the, the, the power and capacity and interests of the people. You have a really interesting section of the book where you compare 
that approach of bringing in people's knowledge and really believing in people's knowledge to more of an old-style reformism. Mm. Well, the, you talk about the Fabian movement in the UK, mm. which believed in equality, but it still was that movement was led by elites and their ideas, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, I was very struck one night I read the diary of Beatrice Webb, who was the sort of leading Fabian. And she she wrote these very frank diaries where she sort of confessed or didn't, she didn't think of it as a confession, but she explained her basic beliefs as well as, as reporting all kinds of gossip. But she said one night, she said that she and her husband, Sidney Webb, and they did things very much as a sort of collaborative couple with other Fabians like Bernard Shaw and, and so on, um, they believed that the, uh, he, she says, has this phrase, the average sensual man can describe his problems but cannot prescribe the solutions. Therefore, we need to bring on the experts, i.e. people like them. So the average person can vote yes or no, can sort of cry out in pain, but can't actually creatively produce answers. And that's been the basis of the welfare state, of the way that public industries are run, very paternalistic and often you know in the public industries the nationalized industries it's been the old bosses from the private sector plus originally you know retired admirals and colonels and military figures because it was assumed they could command they could run things that labor you know was not seen as a creative force uh, or, or workers were not seen as responsible active democratic citizens they were seen as voters, sometimes as a problem to be controlled, not as an asset to be, you know, on the basis of collaboration and creative production and innovation, you know, but as a, as a, as a problem or a mere factor and input in production. I mean, some managers have kind of recognised the limits of that and introduced their own sort of focus groups and quality circles. But politics is still based on that very wasteful, hierarchical and, and presumptuous, arrogant notion of knowledge and capacity. I think you used the phrase somewhere, bringing the knowledgeable citizen in, mm. the, um, not just the voting citizen, but mm. the, the knowledgeable citizen. And one thing I really liked about that book, because we've worked at IDS a fair amount on participation and mm. in new forms of particip- creating knowledge. Yeah, no, IDS is a sort of leading... Research. We've also worked a bit on participatory democracy and mm. what that means, participatory mm. governance. That's been mm. the core of my work for many years. Mm. But you extend it further because you also talk about bringing that popular knowledge and citizen voice into the economy mm. and into the workplace. Mm. Tell us why you think that connection is also important and, and what that means in practice. Yes, I mean, I must say with all this, I've not fully worked out my ideas. So these discussions are really helpful. Um, it's not a kind of manifesto of an alternative politics. It's saying this is the basis, or I suggest this could be the basis of a new politics. And the importance of economics struck me because it seems that social democracy, you know, always rested on the existing economy. In a way, it was about distribution of the profit through taxation uh, of that which was produced through a traditional capitalist economy in which the worker you know was pretty much 
a subject, you know, a kind of uh, not a slave because obviously they were free in terms of their their ability to move workplaces to a degree. But you know, they had no rights. You know, when when somebody enters a factory, they 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 leave their rights and their their citizenship behind almost. I mean, okay, trade unions have been key in resisting that total oppression. But still, it's not a democracy at most factories. And it seemed to me there's always going to be a, a contradiction between the goals of social democracy, which is social justice, and the economic environment in which social democratic governments and parties work. And obviously that's got worse with the increasing monopolization and sort of gigantism of, of corporations, which have increasingly captured state institutions. So I, I felt you can't achieve any kind of real social justice unless you change the economy. How do you do that? It seemed from just experience that you've got to start from from the people that are suffering, that are the subject of injustice in the economy, and, and start from their organisation and learn from their capacity. So I'd, I'd witnessed a lot of experiences of workers actually using their trade union strength to develop alternatives, using their skills, whether in the private sector, their technological design and engineering skills, or in the public sector, their knowledge of care, of providing good services, which is often suppressed in the way the state is organised. So I that's why I thought we must think about participatory democracy in the economy. I mean, I'm not original in that. Obviously, the whole co-op movement a lot of the origins of socialism come from that belief. So I'm trying to recover those ideas and say they're relevant now, even though they're going to be very difficult and they need, they need the support of a facilitating state. You're listening to Between the Lines, brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. One of the reasons your book is so interesting and accessible is because you've also been an activist and practitioner over the years, and you, you give a number of examples, concrete live examples of what you're talking about. And I know one, for instance, was where workers in, in, um, in the public bureaucracy got together to reorganize their workplace. Mm. And in a time of austerity, when bureaucracies and, and public workers are, are facing these challenges all over the world. Mm. That might I, Can you share that story? Yes, I'll try and... Um, I'm rather bad at telling stories quickly, but I'll try because uh, I sort of remember all the people and wanted to talk about them. But basically it was in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which is a big northern city, where there's quite a strong um, sort of community feeling um, so workers in the town hall feel that they're working for the for the for the city. So there's quite a strong public service ethic, as it were, reinforced daily by people's relations with their neighbours and and this sense of a, of, a, of of strong communities. And the unions there faced privatisation of actually the least glamorous, most bureaucratic part of the uh, council. It was called I, the IT and Related Services. So it's already jargonistic. Mm. You know, so it was, it was the IT system and then all the, I wouldn't well, services, but basically key things that made the bureaucratic wheels 
turn, you know, the payment of bills, the collection of taxes, all these things. And I thought, well, this is a bit of a challenge to to write about this. And um, a friend of mine from the past was the trade union convener and rang me up and said, oh, you know, you'd be interested in this. It's all, you know, workers are wanting to do something. And basically the workers there, it was a very democratic, he'd led the union in a very democratic participatory way. So in response to privatisation, you know, first there was industrial action and people saying no and big demonstrations, our city is not for sale. And then people said, well, actually, you know, we know this system is inefficient. You know, we've got our own ideas about how this could be. We we have we talk about it, and if we got together and shared those ideas, we could come up with a much better system, much better set of proposals for reform than British Telecom, which was the company that was, you know, already the managers who were very demoralised, you know, and and our Prime Minister then Tony Blair was sort of deepening that demoralisation by rather castigating public sector workers. They they were almost prepared to throw the problem over the fence and say, okay, a private company can sort this out, you know, I've had enough. But the workers were saying, no, they're going to use those reforms to make profits, but we could use those reforms to improve the service for our citizens, our friends, our neighbours, our families. And also we could make it more we could maximise public efficiency rather than maximising profit to then use the resources to reallocate to frontline services like adult care or old people's care or children's services. Um, so they did that. They they then had a way days. Then it was a strong union, so they could negotiate time off because you need time to gather this knowledge together. And And they brought workers together in different sections but as a union in a way they had an overview or an underview because they had people from all the different departments brought them together to set to think how could they improve the systems which in a way they'd been working with and they designed so they knew what was wrong with them and they shared these ideas and that began to galvanize management so management began to come on board the politicians in the end came on board because in a way, these unions had workers had had convinced the population of Newcastle that privatisation wasn't the way forward, and there was an alternative. So then, a, there was a, it's a good example of the need for political support, and you know participation from below. So there was a, um, a commitment made by the council to say no to privatisation until alternatives had been looked at which then put the onus on the management and workers to look for alternatives. The the workers and management developed an alternative and made it an in-house bid uh, against the private company. Mm. And it was considered much more publicly efficient. You know, there's still, in Britain, though privatisation has gone very far, there's still some commitment to what's called fiduciary duty, some commitment to maximise the interests of the people. And um, and so it all went ahead. New managers were appointed with the involvement of the unions uh, and um, huge savings were made, which were then reallocated as intended to, to frontline needs, needs of children and old people. And so it was a very good example of, in a way, democratization as an alternative to privatization i mean sadly it hasn't really been followed mm-hmm. there, there hasn't been a, a government that's 
taken that up. Hopefully there will be. But it is. That was a new example to me. It is a great example of of using the knowledge of, of workers or the knowledge of citizens to to solve everyday problems. Mm. And in fact, to make, to deal with issues of democracy, to solve them by deepening mm. democratic participation mm. rather than mm. running running away from it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. About 10 years ago, mm. maybe a bit longer, though mm. you and I were together on a very exciting panel in Porto Alegre, Brazil, mm. Mm. and then there was great excitement about participatory budgeting in Brazil, mm. and there were new participatory innovations all over the world. But now we seem to be in a slightly different era. There seems to be a closing down of mm. civic space mm. in many parts of the world. Mm. And uh, some of our research now has shifted from mm. focusing on the opportunities from for deepening democracy and mm. participation to asking the question, what do we do when mm. so many of the opportunities, when, when we're facing closing civic space through violence, through legislation, through authoritarian mm. politics mm. all over the world. So how do we apply these ideas at this moment in time? Yeah, no, or that's... Do you think <laughs> the closed spaces are closing? Well, I mean, to be honest, I haven't got a simple answer to that. And obviously it's one that worries me, particularly um, after what's happening in Brazil. And so, I I mean, I, I think, I suppose, I still don't lose heart because I do feel that people... You know they haven't lost their capacity. They they've they've not had that capacity supported and developed. And I think one reason why you know there's been support for for authoritarian politicians is because the politicians of the of social justice have not fully respected and supported and talked to the mass of people. And so, though we've been part of very exciting and empowering experiences, they've always been a minority in that, in whatever context, or generally they have. So, I think we've got to not stop believing in that politics of of empowering the people in terms of developing their knowledge and their collective ability to to to, to govern. But we have to, we have to. We have to build on any kind of resistance there is. I mean, usually in the face of authoritarianism, there is resistance. So from what I hear about the situation in Brazil, a lot of the people voting for the for Bolsonaro, the, the victorious um, candidate, actually don't, don't agree with his policies. They might support him, but they don't agree with a lot of the policies around privatisation and so on. So there's a, bis- a basis for for resistance, and I think it's important to to follow that up and support it, not simply in party terms. I think political parties have to accept that they've failed. The political parties on the left generally have failed, and I think um, people who are trying to open spaces again have got to build on on the daily resistance. Often it's neighbours coming together to sort of cope with the problems, sort of the politics of survival. But out of the struggle to survive comes ingenuity and new ideas. So in a way, it's trying to to think about movement politics, not as a moment of, you know, exuberance and sort of mass action, but of a sort of daily interaction and, and mutual help and solidarity. So that's 
as far as I can go, really. It's more a, a kind of approach rather than a solution. That's really interesting. Before coming to IDS many years ago, I, I worked at a place in the United States called the Highlander Center, which mm. has a long history of being a, a, a school for building civic leadership and made great contributions to the civil rights movement in the 60s and to the labor movement before that in the 30s. And I was there in a period which was a bit of a quieter period, and we always mm. used to ask the founding director, Miles Horton, um, what are we doing wrong? because the next movement hasn't emerged from our work. And he said, and I've thought about this a lot in the current period, he said we have to look at the peaks and valleys of citizen action. He Mm. said Highlander's work is best known for what happened when the exuberance emerged and and we saw what was, things became visible. He said, but actually the most important work is what you do in between those mm. moments. And like you're saying, it's about mm. it. those are the times that you continue to, to build citizenship, continue to try new methods, you, you mm. build organizations, you mm. develop small ideas in whatever spaces mm. you can. So uh, for me, I, as, as we get to this more, we might call re- re- regressive era in mm. democratic politics, mm. it, I like what you're saying. It's not about giving up. It's actually about going deep yeah. and continuing to build um, capacities and actions in whatever space yes and even have. going personal i mean you know listening more to your ne- i mean neighbors and workmates and seeing what can come out of issues in in daily life i mean there's often a tendency of politics left politics to to sort of move away you know from your daily life and sort of intervene this this idea of intervening you know in some other sphere rather than Sort of looking at what's happening around you and building on on developments there. Mm, exactly. Shifting a little bit, a, another theme I really liked in the book is around your discussion of power. Mm. And and you and I both studied with Stephen Luke's mm. uh, about the same time at, at Oxford, and we're influenced by his thinking on power. Very much. And and we continue at IDS. We work a lot on different forms of power. And you talk about the difference between transformative power, power from below, the power to act, and more institutional power, power mm. power over that institutions or elites have over people's lives. And we oftentimes put them as polar opposites, but, but you interestingly argue that we need to learn to bring them together. Can you explain that a little bit Yes, more? yes. I mean, yes, it's a distinction between power as transformative capacity and power as domination. And I, and then thinking about how power's domination can be a resource for power as transformative capacity. And I have to say, here I was quite influenced by my late husband Roy Baskar, a critical realist who, who helped to make that distinction. Though others have made it too. And I think it's it, the important thing is is not is not to fall into that dichotomy. They are very different processes involving very different logics. So if you think about the logic of a social movement, or in a way logic's the wrong word, but the dynamic of a social movement like the women's movement, for example, which is is about personal transformation, which involves, you know, a capacity to, to change yourself through your relationships with others, or particularly others in the same circumstances. And on the other hand, the logic of domination, which is a kind of it's a logic that can draw people in that can almost suffocate that creative capacity but turn require people to abide by systems so it's 
very different sort of logics. But on the other hand, you know, we've seen how power over government can be a resource, you know, in terms of public money, uh, in terms of giving a platform to transformative movements. But it requires a change in the ways in which domination is exercised. So in terms of the public sector, public administration, it requires a building on the transformative capacity of workers and communities in the ways that I described about Newcastle that makes that state more responsive. I mean, the the exercise of power as domination has to be informed by and guided by power as transformative capacity. But I think it is useful to keep the distinctions in mind and it might mean in any political party you have almost a division of labour. So you have those in the party that are mainly concerned with supporting movements, are involved in movements, and they're not necessarily involved in the electoral activity or the representative you know, activity, but the two collaborate so they understand each other. But if you have everybody, if they have a feeling that the party's got to either be involved in electoral activity or movements, then you know, usually it ends up as electoral activity, i.e. the dominant kind of power, which is power's domination. And the party's involvement in social movements diminishes, you know, something that's happened in Greece and happened in Brazil. So it's important that those two understandings of power guide your strategic thinking and allow for a plurality of strategies that are about combination and collaboration rather than about, you know, either or. And that was another key point in your book that you make in the end. It, it's You say it's not about one strategy mm. alone. You talk about ecologies of knowledge and ecologies of action in this big process of transformation. But as a journalist and as a listener and as an activist, you've traveled all over the world, Brazil, Greece, South Africa, UK... Are you hopeful? Um, yes, I'm hopeful in a kind of um, guarded way. I haven't my hopes dashed rather too often to be kind of waking up every day thinking, wow, you know, things are going to change and things are going to happen. So I'm always a bit wary of being too hopeful. But I'm hopeful partly because I just find all the time that my belief in people's capacities is being confirmed you know, even in situations of dire, you know, hardship, there's that sort of ingenuity. And also, I suppose, um, I mean, this sounds a bit <laughs> soppy and sentimental, but but children, you know, I'm now, I'm not a mother, but I'm a great, I'm an aunt and a great aunt. And these kids are just amazing in their creativity. So I can see the importance of education and forms of education that really build on that creativity uh, which I don't feel the existing education systems do. So that that gives me hope, but also a sense of the urgency of change in order to, to realise that capacity. So it's a kind of, it's a hope that that guides a sense of urgency rather than a kind of hope and lie back and wait. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Hilary. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, John. That was really enjoyable. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Between the Lines is a monthly podcast published the first Wednesday of every month. 
is brought to you by the Institute of Development and Studies. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit ids.ac.uk.